Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. You have heard me say this, and you will hear me say this again. There are certain things that pastors just say over and over and over again. Um, I'm sure you've figured that out by now, not just with me. Um, but the gospel, it's a little uncomfortable because inherently it is about change. To follow the gospel is to be in a continual state of both humility, which is not a natural setting for humans, and growth. And all of that violates our deeply human desires to be perfect or even to be perfectible as we are. The comfort of the gospel, because there is comfort to be found within it, it's not that we are good enough as we are. It is not that we don't need to change. Rather, it's that what we bring to the table is enough on any given day. It's enough to do the work. And it's enough for God to mold and work with and pull on and stretch. The comfort of the gospel is that God knows it's hard work. God knows what is being asked of us. And God knows who God is asking to do said hard work. God knows that intimately. But the comfort of the gospel is that perfectionism is not only not required, it is actually antithetical to the gospel. How's that for comfort right there? Perfectionism is not only not required, it is actually antithetical to the gospel. Don't even try it, y'all. Because that which is already perfect cannot become better. The gospel is all about striving, growth and development and learning. We are called continually to acknowledge the places where we can be more than we have been in the past. Because the gospel message isn't all about how we each live good enough lives to get into heaven. That NBC show, The Good Place, it's a fantastic show and it's completely wrong on that particular count. Watch it anyway, it's really fun. The gospel message is not a checklist for good people. Do all of these things and you'll be okay. Because the gospel is not about individualism. It's a means of self-reflection. It's the lens through which we examine our own lives and our relationships with one another. It is the ways that we build communal life and self-care together. Bless you. The gospel is the counterweight to that inward focus that we are all so, so good at. It is the check and the balance that asks us continually to discern whether we are proceeding from a place of compassion for one another or from a place of fear that keeps everyone else at arm's distance. And in answering that question honestly, we are going to become uncomfortable. Sometimes that's exactly the point of the gospel. As we come face to face, 
with the places that we need to learn and we need to grow, the places where we aren't perfect. It's gonna give us that little twisty sense in the middle of our guts that goes, Ooh, I could have done that better. I really didn't do that as well as I could have done. It's an awful, awful feeling. But where would we be without it? Because the other uncomfortable part of the gospel is that while it's good news for everyone, and it is that, it is a more uncomfortable text to some of us than to others. That traditional Advent text that I preached about not all that long ago, that song of Mary, the Magnificat, that Luke 1, 46 to 55, Bible study knows those bits by heart, in which she says, her soul magnifies the Lord who has brought the powerful down and lifted up the lowly. That most basic of gospel texts, that's going to sound really, really different to the lowly than it sounds to the powerful now, isn't it? Who's going to be more uncomfortable there? Mm. Yeah. But the same thing could be said about the Beatitudes. It's not just Mary who makes us uncomfortable, although she's really good at it. Her son's pretty good at it, too. All those blessed that flip the whole world on its head. Or the very many, many moments in which Jesus condemns the accumulation of wealth as the greatest obstacle to achieving the kingdom. You know, all that stuff that we who live in a capitalist society really, really, really don't like him to say. Yeah. As much as we all want to level the playing field, and we want that equality that is the promise of the Gospels, it's hard when we figure out that that's actually going to cost us something in the living of it. Which brings us around to today which does not on its surface seem like one of those texts. But this is a really hard text to preach, this opening salvo in the Gospel of John. It is absolutely one of my favorite poems in the entire Bible. This is a gorgeous hymn of praise to God and to the incarnate Christ. And... It is possibly one of the more problematic texts in our Bible, especially for an English-speaking audience. And it's problematic in ways that are really uncomfortable for us to see. Because whereas the original text, that original Greek, and the words in Hebrew that were probably the basis of the poem in the first place, probably written in Aramaic and translated into Greek, but any of those original words, those words in those first verses, they talk about the illumination of the void. They don't talk about light and darkness. They talk about the illumination of the void. But those aren't the words that we get. All of our translations talk about the light coming into the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. And that can have that original meaning about illuminating void. But it also, in English, in the ways that we hear it and the ways that it resonates in our minds and hearts, it has all of the added baggage of being the same terms that we tend to apply to people, notably to the color of their skin. 
and as much as this text speaks to the realities that humans have long known, that we need illumination around us in order to function well, that our physical eyes are not developed very well for being nocturnal. The way that these particular words are read into our particular current context, the binary notions of good and evil, holiness and profanity that cannot be entirely dissociated from the ways we look at each other, cannot be ignored or dismissed. Indeed, the language of our heritage, as Americans, as most of us from Western European descent, the language of expansive colonial empires that both created us and gave our nation its very model for being, couched their exploitative mission in the language of bringing light to darkness. And like it or not, we are the inheritors of that legacy in both our nation and our faith. Because the gospel is sometimes not only uncomfortable in the messages that it proclaims, but in its call to look even harder at the ways in which we read the gospel itself. At the ways in which we read the texts that hold the good news that we struggle to follow. We have many times been challenged by gospel texts that did not feel like good news to anyone. I have a whole archive of really uncomfortable sermons on those texts. We all can name the texts that have been used to perpetuate tremendous harm against Jews or against women, or even against the poor, ironically, despite Jesus' insistence upon economic justice as a hallmark of the kingdom of God. We're really good at taking things and twisting them to our own advantage, aren't we? However, if we take seriously the idea that God's grace actually insists upon our humble imperfections, insists upon it, requires that of us in order to crack open the divine possibilities within this world, then we need to examine even this gorgeous foundational text and then look resolutely at the words that are both gospel truth and continuing harm. It's easy for us to agree that the bare minimum of our faith is, in fact, sort of that Hippocratic oath to do no harm. It isn't only medical practitioners who should live by those words, I don't think. But it's really hard to have to acknowledge when we do hurt people, especially when we do it unintentionally, or with all of the best intentions in this world. We know what is paved with those good intentions now, don't we? And I suspect I have told you before, but I will tell you again, of that time when this exact thing came up with this exact text. When a pastor, upon hearing the suggestion that this text, these very verses, might in fact perpetuate and solidify our light is good and black is evil cultural binary to the detriment of our black neighbors whom we are supposed to love. And this pastor exclaimed loudly, somewhat defensively, that everyone's afraid of the dark and the people of color should just know what we mean and that we don't mean them, and because this text is beautiful and meaningful, and we need to just leave it alone because it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible in English, y'all. That was our choice. 
The actor Ossie Davis once said, The English language is my enemy. It teaches the black child 60 ways to hate himself and the white child 60 ways to aid and abet him in that crime. And in listening to the defensiveness of the pastor who insisted that the beauty of this text, which had never harmed her, should be given priority over the harm that our light, dark, good, evil binaries do to our neighbors, just made the truth of Davis's words ring painfully, clearly, loudly before us all. We struggle to acknowledge the harms that we do, when it might mean letting go of something that we have enjoyed, when it might involve the pain of changing, the challenge of acknowledging the unintended consequences of our actions or words or interpretations. And sometimes, as in the case of that pastor, we even put the burden upon those who have been hurt in order to avoid feeling any discomfort ourselves. But that is not the gospel. The gospel calls us, sometimes, to be uncomfortable for the sake of loving one another. The gospel calls us sometimes to be uncomfortable for the sake of seeking God's truth, which is a little bit bigger than ours. The gospel is the story of the one who was in the beginning with God, the one who is the word, and therefore the one who is concerned with words and with those who have systematically been brought low by a humanity that loves comfort often more than it loves justice. The gospel calls us to approach one another with humility, and therefore to approach our lives, our faith, and even our sacred texts with the willingness to acknowledge that maybe we're not getting it right. The willingness to acknowledge that maybe we need to change ourselves in order to become incarnate in the body of Christ. The gospel calls us to approach one another with the conviction that we must remain rooted in love in order to grow into the promised kingdom. And indeed, the gospel calls us to remember that everything that does grow, everything that is called to grow, must send roots deep into the darkness of the soil in order to then stretch upwards toward the sun. For all life requires that balance. The story that this slightly problematic in English text tells us is one that rejects the very binary that is being set up. And told on this Epiphany Sunday, it becomes the story of wise ones who travel by night following a star. The night is what leads them, after all. It is the story of the divine entering into the shadow land of mortality in order to bring death back to life. It is the story of an infant who, like all humans, must develop in the darkness of the womb before it can emerge into the illumination of the world. The theologian Will Gaffney calls us to a gospel perspective, a justice-seeking discomfort as we approach this text. And I quote, This good news is framed in the stark language of light and dark, shadow and glory. And it is far too easy for us as Americans to hear those words through our history of race and racism. We are taught from a young age that everything light and white is good and everything dark and black is bad. Race is always in the room for us, but it wasn't for John or for Jesus and their world. Most skin was brown in Israel then. Even Roman legions were largely black and brown, having been filled with conscripts from Asia and Africa. 
The mystic Howard Thurman taught us that somewhere between the light and the darkness, between the shadow and the glory, there is space that he called the luminous darkness. Others have called it radiant blackness. Think of the night sky spangled with stars or the sheen of black silk or satin or the glow of beautiful ebony skin. In the age of Black Lives Matter, I invite you to take another look at the light and the darkness and see them on their own terms. In the beginning, before God created light, there was darkness. We are afraid of the dark, but God is not. Darkness is a creative space to God. Out of darkness, God created everything that is, including light. I like to think that light and dark are not in conflict, but in balance. We like to think in polar opposites, good, bad, light, dark, God, the devil. Even life and death, however, are not opposites. We are born to die and die to live. We pass through death to live again. We are called to a mature faith in a complex world. There is light and dark, shadow and more than 50 shades of gray. The darkness and light coexist. There is always shadow. We can't see in the dark. We trip over the smallest thing. But it is not the dark that hurts us. It is our own limitations. It is our own limitations. This text is still one of my favorite poems in the entire Bible. Maybe because it makes me think every single time I read it. Because it is still also one of the most difficult texts that I ever have to preach. For it requires us, right from the start, to look beyond the surface, to go deeper than the words. It requires us to turn a gospel lens upon the gospel itself, to risk discomfort in the seeking of truth. To turn exclusionary binaries into life-giving balance that acknowledges God's blessing explicitly upon all that is, whether we understand it or not, whether we have experienced it ourselves or not. And in doing so, it reminds us that God trusts us to be capable of such leaps, of such compassion, of such empathy, of such grace, as this text, especially in our current American context, demands of us. And we have the comfort, in the midst of this exercise in living the gospel, of knowing that our growth is dependent upon both darkness and light, and that that growth is enough to open the kingdom before us. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.